This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, sunny ways have turned into dark clouds on the liberal campaign trail. What is in store for Afghanistan in the next 24 hours? Do you feel safe going to the polls during a global pandemic? And TV veteran Ed Asner has passed away. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Pots up, shirts are off. Are you ready? Yep. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's the last week of summer holidays and we have a heat wave. No shirt, no shoes, no problem. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Willers, come back at the station, keeping us between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, lots of ways to do that. Feel free. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, it seems that uh, there is some uh, distraction along the campaign trail for the prime minister. Uh, and um, a lot of the places he goes, he's getting heckled, including here uh, in Hamilton. And um, but again, seems to be turning that around and spinning it around. Is this the wedge issue he's looking for? When he points to the protesters and says, look, that's the opposition. Uh, is is that uh, the wedge issue? Is that the fight that he needs to get himself out of this deadlock with the conservatives? Uh, it's been a fascinating weekend to talk more about all of this. Alyssa Freeman with us. Alyssa, PR, pop culture and PR expert and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, as I hope you're doing You're doing well, too, Scott. I can't I am. Thanks so much. <laughs> I hear you, man. It's a Monday. So yeah. we were talking about this last week, and, you know, the prime minister is uh, desperately looking for a wedge issue. He's looking for a fight uh, to try to justify an election that nobody really wanted. And still, the, that issue is, is is showing up in the polls that people aren't happy about that. So uh, fast forward, protesters starting to show up on the Trudeau campaign. It gets out of hand just before the weekend and to the point where they have to cancel an event uh, because they're concerned about security uh and now it seems that trudeau's playing the victim with all of that and using this to his favor will this work is this a good strategy is this a good wedge issue for a fight well i'll tell you i don't know if uh trudeau knows all the names and addresses of these um protesters but i can tell you one thing he should send them all thank you cards because you're right he has been having to dodge the question why did you call this election in the first place which i didn't think would be a narrative that would stick but it certainly has 
Um, the other thing, too, is is that at first it was like, uh-oh, this is going to be a big problem for this campaign as it rolls from city to city to city. However, what they've done is create this as sort of like, a, you know, a David versus Goliath. So no matter where he goes, there are these protesters. And, and, and they're active protesters. They're not um, holding any punches. They're... They're angry, they're nasty, and quite frankly, they're not putting themselves in a good light. So, you know, we have discussed about how Trudeau probably doesn't want to be known as the pandemic prime minister, but these protesters are mainly talking about, I don't want to have to have a vaccine, I don't want to wear a mask, this is like a communist country. And then suddenly, they have helped shape a new narrative that I don't think that Trudeau was going to go down for, you know, or at least double down on during the campaign, but they've certainly switched gears. And the last time I saw him on TV at this uh, most recent protest, I thought, ah, these guys may just help him win. Uh, Interesting you should say that. Obviously, uh, you know, we've seen that spin. We've seen that spin uh, just before the weekend uh, when when obviously the uh, the protests went uh, awry and or sorry, the uh, rally went awry and the protests, uh, uh, I guess, protesters convinced uh, officials to cancel uh, an event. Can can the prime minister paint the opposition as that's the opposition. That's everybody who's voting against me when this is a small group of anarchists that, from what I hear, have traveled from rally to rally across the country. Well, even if they're not, I would absolutely create that narrative that this is who yeah. what the opposition stands for. And, you know, all you have to do is ask Aaron O'Toole and say, where do you stand on a vaccine mandate? And you're going to get your answer right then and there because he's never given a straight answer. He said, like, if you want a vaccine, you should go get it. But if you want to be tested, you should go get it. Because he knows his base, you know, supposedly, I guess. I mean, Ben Ford may disagree with him right now, but does not want to have a vaccine passport and doesn't want to be mandated if they should have a vaccine. However, you know, I, I know we're not touching on this right now, but, you know, the provincial conservatives are now talking about a campaign, about a mm-hmm. vaccine passport. So, Really, the only reason I have to, you know, surmise why they're doing that spot is that they did polling and they're like, oh, our base wants that. Okay, we'll switch gears. Yeah, exactly. Do you think you'll see uh, O'Toole change his position or his message in any way, considering what Ontario is thinking? Well, it's interesting. You know, as Ontario goes, does the rest of the country go? So I would say that the Western provinces will probably say no to that. So O'Toole has a bigger job. He just, you know, he's just not running in Ontario, although... You and I both know that he is, but he also has to consider the other provinces, too. So he doesn't want to disenfranchise the people, especially from the West, who may be aligned in that thinking, just so he can align himself with Ontario. So he's a bit uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place on this one. Is this the divisiveness the Prime Minister's campaign is looking for? I mean, as we said earlier, the first uh, couple of weeks were kind of a sleeper, talking about things that weren't really uh, top-of-mind issues before this election was called. Is this the the fight, the divisiveness the Prime Minister's looking for? You know, it just might be. And uh, it's an organic divisiveness um, that has come about that they thought, okay, we're going to switch away from abortion. We're going to switch away from whatever. And and let's concentrate on this because this is what is making the news. The cameras are there to to see what these protesters are up to and if they're going to get uh, any more riled up at any more rallies. 
So I, I think it is. And, and you know, it was really interesting because when, you know, I hate to compare him, but uh, when Doug Ford ran, I mean, he had no platform. I don't know, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because it seems that the Trudeau camp has ripped the page right out of Doug Ford's uh, old campaign. And, like, yeah, we'll get to a platform when we get to it. So it seems like they're just sort of holding it off as long as they can. And they'll probably do it right before uh, the next English debate. And we'll see it then. But I find it interesting that they're really in no hurry to uh, submit a platform. Uh, Once again, we have a battle of the extremes. Once again, we are seeing, you know, uh, the fringe element get the headlines and and the prime minister use that for hay against his opposition. Um, O'Toole, on the other hand, is being questioned for bringing his party to the center. Will will voters see through this? Will will voters understand what this is? And, and again, it's we've got a divisive prime minister. We do. Will voters see through this? You know, it's interesting when I look at the polls every day. It looks pretty tight. It looks as if the, the conservatives are up a bit. I have to tell you, I think this is one of those elections, like in the states, you know, in 2016, where nobody's really going to tell you who they're going to vote for. You know, nobody in 2016 wanted to tell you that they were voting for Trump, yet they did, and in large numbers. So I think that that is playing into this. I think also that the two other leaders, it took about, what, two, three, four protests for the two other leaders um, to say, or the three other leaders to say, gee, you know, we this is, this is abhorrent behavior and uh, this should not be allowed. So they finally had to make a comment about it. So you know that this is having an effect on the campaign because the other the, uh, the opposition is having to come out and uh, apologize for this type of behavior, saying that nobody should enjoy this behavior. And they certainly can't say it's because, well, he's the wrong guy for prime minister. No, they can't say that. So, I, you know, this has proved to be a very interesting turn of events in the campaign. It is very much a distraction because here we are, if this does became, become a major issue, we're fighting over the extremes. This is not a mainstream issue. It's an extreme issue. And it's, it, to me, it's like fighting about abortion. What does the opposition do to counter this, both the NDP and the Conservatives? Well, you know, the Conservatives are going to have to find another wedge issue um, that will pit them, them and make them differentiate even more against uh, the Liberals and, and even more against the NDP. So it'll be interesting to see what issue that they double down on, because it's not going to be climate, because you know that O'Toole got roasted over the coals at the French language debate because of a lack of uh, a sort of a robust, if you will, climate plan. So will it be the economy? Will it be, I mean, it might be the economy because the economy has always worked in their favor. But, and, and you know, and, and as for Jagmeet Singh, I mean, Jagmeet Singh was essentially in a, in a great place for Trudeau, um, you know, when everybody was, you know, still sitting in Parliament. And he was the one that helped, you know, Trudeau make all the deals that he wanted to make. So what will Jagmeet Singh say? I mean, if this is going to be now... A, an election of political extremes, then that really turns things, Scott, because I think that there are more people that want vaccine passports, that want people to be double vaccinated than not. And so if you are voting for 
okay, let's say me personally, if you are waiting for a country that is, has herd immunity, that uh, considers the safety and the health of myself and my family, who are you voting for? Are you going to vote for the guy who says, okay, let's just get this going so we can get back on our feet again? Or are you going to go for the, vote for the guy who's like, well, I don't know, maybe you should have it, maybe you shouldn't. And then is the NDP that much of a differentiator? So, you know, like you say, this extreme has now become mainstream. Yeah, good point. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh again on the uh, on the campaign trail talking about taxing the wealthy, taxing the wealthy, rich guys going into space. Uh, is again, we've heard this for decades. It seems. It does this. Does this have more traction today? Because three guys did go into, or two guys did go into space. I think it's a really weird narrative, and I think that you know when you talk about this, this is how they're trying to differentiate themselves. So. Like I just mentioned, you know, how can they differentiate themselves um, more on uh, vaccination mandates than Trudeau? Not much, because I think they're fairly aligned as far as that's concerned. How can they differentiate more than climate uh, change? Well, they're fairly aligned on that, too, maybe with some differences here and there. So where are they going to go, Scott? Like, where are they going to go? So let's just tax the rich more. And they double down on that narrative. That's what all yeah. the TV narratives are. And so but they're being very careful by saying, let's tax the super rich or the uber wealthy. I don't know what the phrase is, but I'm pretty sure he said the super rich. Because how do you define rich, right? What does rich mean anymore in this country? You are earning more than $100,000. Is that considered rich? Well, if you're an Ontario Sunshine List, you are. So it's, it's very careful. It's not a... Um, you know, it's not a new narrative, but it's a narrative that they're that they're using, and I'm not sure how effective it's going. To, it is. I mean, it's still running. I haven't seen the polling on it yet to see if it is effective. But it will be interesting. He's obviously trying to appeal to a younger voter. So, do younger voters are they are they do they really care about that? Yeah, I think they do care about the economy. But I will tell you, if I think about my daughter and what is her number one issue as a 21-year-old young woman in this country, it's climate change. It's not about the super rich about going into space. (laughs) Uh, Many have said, uh, if you look back at the NDP's success, it was Bob Ray, it was Jack Layton, who uh, more often than not brought the party into the mainstream. As you said, though, the mainstream uh, is changing. Uh, We've certainly seen the Greens implode prior to uh, uh, the election call and, and the issues that they had for their leader. Uh, I think the biggest issue for the NDP is, again, same thing with Bob Ray, was are they ready for prime time? Do they have what is needed in place to run government? Uh, have they made, have they had that growth? Have they had, uh, have they made those advances? Advances Because, again, we remember in the last election, the NDP was, was polling very high, and then they ended up losing seats. So, uh, how, are they ready for prime time now? Are they ready? Do Canadians see them as being ready to govern? Have they ever been ready for prime time, I think, is the question. Okay, so yeah. you and I are about the same age, right, Scott? Yep. Do you remember when we woke up the next morning after the provincial, Ontario provincial election and we found out that Bob Ray, when he was with the NDP, was now Premier? Yes. I mean, I remember my parents like, Wh- what? <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I love Bob Ray. I think he's an amazing statesman, and and he's especially suited for the role that he is in right now. But I don't think it was a great uh, tenure. 
uh, during his reign as premier. And I think that the one thing that anybody our age will remember are Ray Days. I remember yeah. Ed Broadbent, you know, and, and, and obviously Jack Layton. And I think that many Canadians have always thought, great guy, wrong party. Yeah. And I remember people saying that in the Ed Broadbent days. And he yep. was a great guy. But it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, that, I mean, our, listen, our healthcare system is socialist, but are we ready to be a socialist country? And I think that that scares the living daylights out of people. Uh, does it so the younger generation? You know what? Um, I think that they like his TikTok, but are they ready to vote him in for prime minister? I don't know. I th- I don't really think I can, I can answer that question. Um, it will be interesting to see how how they do vote for him. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the anti-vaxxers becomes now the new wedge issue and whether anybody else's narratives can break through. Because right now, over the past 72 hours, nobody else's narratives have broken through. And then today on the front page of the Golden Mail, there was apparently some stealth mission that uh, the Canadian government went in and scooped up all the translators and all those people who were allied with us while we were there and, and got them out of Afghanistan. So right now, uh, the opposition is having a little bit of a hard time getting onto the front page. Will protest right reasons. Will protests be key through this campaign? Is that what we'll be talking about? Will we be seeing instead of, you know, we remember the days with the prime minister standing up there like a rock star cheering with all of these people around him. Uh, is, is it going to be, uh, for this campaign, the, the, the prime minister standing up there, but instead protesters behind him and sort of, you know, playing the victim, and here's what we're up against, here's here's the opposite, here's the extreme, here's what the opposition will give you. Well, I think it's very important how he messages this, Scott, because if you remember back Hillary Clinton, and she had her protesters, and she had her naysayers, and what did she call them once? I think in a debate or in some um, online speech, she called them, quote-unquote, a basket of deplorables. Well, that was just like a knife, and honestly... It just cut people to the quick, and they thought, what, because I disagree with you? You call me a deplorable? You think that this is who I am? So if the Trudeau campaign is going to continue to leverage these protesters, he has to be super, super careful and not get swept up in the moment to actually deride them personally, but to stay above the fray and talk about the issue that is dividing Canadians. And that might be a very uh, touchy line to walk because there's a lot of emotion that that, that, that comes attached to protesters and, and angry protesters. So if he can remain above board, and listen, he's an experienced politician. Excuse me, he should be able to remain above board. But that's what we need to watch out for. Alyssa Freeman with us, Alyssa PR, PR and pop culture expert, talking about, uh, what is it now, day 16 of the campaign and uh, what will be the big wedge issue to get everybody fighting as we head to the polls. Alyssa, thanks for the time. As always, be well. And you too, Scott. Thank you. Here's the commentary you've been waiting for. The Justin Trudeau selfies and sunny ways of his first election campaign have all but been replaced by dark clouds of a looming storm and an election no one wanted except himself in search of his elusive liberal majority. Trudeau has been followed by a steady stream of hecklers, including in Hamilton, that came to a head last week when the liberal campaign had to cancel a rally because of security concerns. No one at either extreme should be supported in such endeavors 
as it only polarizes what is becoming a very divided country, a country more divided now than it was before Justin Trudeau took office. Some have tried to blame this extremism on the opposition, but the prime minister has only to look in the mirror for the division in this country he has helped create with his my way or you don't count attitude. Whether it's indigenous rights, climate change, or even gender, the prime minister is constantly looking for a wedge issue to divide and distract away from the reality of an election no one wanted in the middle of a global pandemic. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has divided Canadians while blaming everyone else, and this chaos he has helped create only feeds his own narrative and his own ultimate goals. If you create divisiveness, you'll eventually experience it. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, uh, all kinds of information coming out of Afghanistan, and uh, we're hearing of a very heroic rescue uh, from uh, with some help from the Ukraine, and uh, also that as this deadline of August 31st approaches, it is virtually becoming more and more possible to even get into the airport in Afghanistan. To talk more about all of this, Phil Gursky is with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Director of the University of Ottawa Security Program, and former analyst with CSIS and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Phil. We're, we're hearing, uh, let's start with this, uh, a heroic rescue with help from the Ukraine in getting some of our, uh, the people out that helped uh, uh, Canadian military with uh, uh, interpreters, that sort of thing. Uh, what more can you tell us about this mission? It's a, as you say, it's a fantastic success. And, and, you know, a lot of countries, including Canada, and I would, I want to stress though, a lot of players that are not at the government level, but moving mountains to try and get people out who helped us as interpreters or translators during our time in Afghanistan. I've been privy to a very good friend of mine is engaged on the phone on a 24 hour basis trying to f- figure out how to get people out of Afghanistan into safety. And I think that this is a real kudos to Canadians who realize the importance of this thing and are willing to work with as many partners as possible, including Ukrainians in this case, to try to affect these people's escape. Because you, we all know, right, if, if they're going to get stuck in Afghanistan indefinitely, it's not going to be a happy situation for them. So uh, two thumbs up for the, the, you know, the Herculean efforts being, being uh, carried out by people like this. Apparently, uh, these Ukraine military soldiers went outside of the airport, uh, and, and from what we understand, uh, on foot, and literally uh, surrounded this van of, of, of people who were trying to get into the airport and brought them in. Is there anything more you can tell us about this mission? No, I'm not familiar with the mission per se, but if, you know, if that in, in fact is the case, I mean, I mean, A, imagine the bravery of these people because they're in a situation where, you know, there's this, there's Islamic State terrorists, the Taliban, of course, is in power. They're a direct personal danger to their own safety. For them to do that, go outside their base and, and to help this family, I think really speaks to the commitment of them to try and do whatever they can to rescue these poor people from what is going to be a, a terrible future in Afghanistan. And, and I think that, you know, it, we need more examples like this where people are saying, you know, this is the right thing to do. Yes, there's some danger to my own personal safety, but this is just what we should do, given what these people did for us all the years we were in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, uh, the tension is mounting as we get closer to the 31st and the deadline. We're hearing of rocket attacks. Where would they be coming from? Is this ISIS-K again? Islamic State in Khorasan, or ISIS-K, has in fact claimed responsibility for rocket attacks on Kabul, 
Uh, I see no reason to doubt that they would be behind them. They they want to disrupt this as much as possible. You know, the thing is, as bad as the Taliban are, Scott, and you and I have talked about this in the past, ISIS in Khorasan or ISK, you know, is even one level or even several levels even below that. They are a hateful group who would target anybody, irrespective of who they are. And so I think you can expect that we'll see more of these attacks in, in, in the future. And uh, Islamic State in Khorasan, unfortunately, has been dismissed as a significant force in Afghanistan. I mean, they may not be all that big, but they did carry out the suicide bombing in Kabul that killed about well over 100 people right now. The rocket attacks today and yesterday, and I, I don't see any reason why ISK is going to stop what they're doing, because that's what they stand for. Uh, will Taliban and ISIS-K clash? Uh, will ISIS-K uh, hurt the Taliban's attempt at, a tri- uh, attempt at a charm offensive and trying to form some sort of government? Will these two clash? That's the $64 million question. I've seen a bunch of analyses uh, that kind of go on both sides of that. So bottom line, Scott, is that the Taliban and ISIS-K are cut from the same cloth. They are Islamist terrorist groups. They're both listed in Canada and in other jurisdictions. I've seen people say that for the Taliban, the ISK are a little bit too much, a little bit too brutal. But I would remind people that in the past, we've seen terrorist groups that didn't really get along, like Al-Qaeda and other ISIS groups in parts of Africa. Actually, they do collaborate. So I think it's far too early at this point to say the Taliban will, will you know, clamp down on the Islamic State. I've even heard the Taliban will work with the Americans to get rid of ISK. I mean, can you imagine that? The Americans getting in there with the Taliban to get rid of a second group? Like, I mean, that's... We're now in la-la land or something, because it's a completely different reality from what I know. I think we're going to have to see. Um, again, I mean, the Taliban are much, much bigger than Islamic State, of course. And maybe at some point they will do things that are so heinous in nature that they will invite retribution from the Taliban. But I think it's far too early at this point to make that kind of prediction. Uh, obviously, a few days ago, a suicide bomber at the airport, uh, ISIS-K taking responsibility for that. 169 Afghans dead, 13 U.S. soldiers uh, and then that was followed by a U.S. drone attack. Apparently, two leaders were killed, uh, significant leaders, uh, 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 during this drone attack. How significant is that? Does that make much of a dent taking out two uh, of these potential leaders? I don't think it does. I, you know, Scott, I, I've been following terrorism, as you know, for a very long time. And I constantly hear about, you know, the number two was taken out for al-Qaeda or the number one for Boko Haram and Nigeria was taken out. And people saying, okay, this is finally, you know, the beginning of the end for this terrorist group. Most terrorist groups that I've seen don't rely critically on one particular leader. If one person gets taken out, someone else fills their place. So it's really, again, it's too early to tell if this will have a significant impact on the Islamic State. The other thing to bear in mind, too, is that one of the drone strikes that was carried out by the U.S. against an Islamic State Khorasan target also killed civilians. And this is the downside of drone strikes. And, and trust mm-hmm. me, I'm not trying to say that drone strikes are, are, shouldn't be considered. But, you know, when civilians die... In addition to terrorists being killed, the terrorists use that as fodder for their own social media. Now look at, you know, yeah. the Americans claim they're going to kill the terrorists while well, they're killing civilians. So whose side do you want to be on here? So Americans are in a very, very difficult place right now. You know, they don't have the, the boots on the ground right one out of tomorrow. Intelligence is much, much harder to gather, especially human intelligence. I mean, signals intelligence is one thing in infantry, but human intelligence is really important. How do you gather it with no assets on the ground? It's it's really hard to tell. But again, I hate to keep saying the same phrase, Scott. It's far too early to tell if, in fact, the removal of senior ISK officials will have a significant dent in the group's ability to carry out more terrorism in Afghanistan. 
Uh, obviously, this all centering around uh, the United States pulling out August 31st. Uh, President, U.S. President Biden um, getting uh, under lots of scrutiny for all of this, uh, uh, including with uh, him commemorating the arrival of, of the 13 soldiers that had passed and were killed uh, during this during this exercise um uh, how does that image go over in the united states does that make anybody change their position on whether they should be in or out of afghanistan oh wow you keep asking me tough questions today. <laughs> um i think the decision has been made i don't think this one attack is as tragic as it is. i mean the americans have only lost a couple dozen people people over the past couple of years in afghanistan and so to lose 13 in one terrorist attack i think certainly hits at the, at the core but I think there's, I would hope that this would not lead to some kind of reversal to, to reimpose American military occupation of Afghanistan. We know that military occupations do not work historically when it comes to terrorism. I guess they're going to have to just get, you know um, use whatever tele- intelligence that they have left to identify the people responsible for the attack and other members of ISK to eliminate them or to bring them to justice or something. But I can't see this changing the mind of the Americans. And one other thing, Scott, just just for the record, Biden's going to have to wear this, but this isn't Biden's fault. I mean, you know, how many presidents have served while, yeah. while the U.S. was in Afghanistan? He just happens to be the guy that, at, the, you know, at the helm of the ship when the withdrawal was finalized. But this has been building for 20 years now. And But, you know, he's a guy that calls the shots in 2021, and even the economist calls it, you know, Biden's debacle. I, I don't think that's fair, but, I mean, it is what it is, right? Uh, many are wondering who will fill the vacuum, what happens to Afghanistan after tomorrow, and, and uh, the last of the U.S. troops are, are, are pulling out, or certainly significant numbers of them. Um, you know, what happens after that, uh, specifically with the countries that are around, the neighboring countries? Uh, will anybody step up? Will anybody be monitoring? We're here that Qatar is playing a, a role here. What about the neighboring countries of Afghanistan? Yeah. So, so, Qatar, so Qatar in the Persian Gulf has always played a major role in terms of intelligence gathering. Uh, they're, they're an American. The Iranians obviously have a best interest. They share a border with Afghanistan, although, you know, the Taliban, one of their, you know, Taliban or ISIS-K, it doesn't matter which one, one of the major enemies of these types of groups are Shia Muslims. And, of course, Iran is a Shia Muslim state. So Iran has to play its cards very carefully. Pakistan has legitimately been criticized for its housing of, the, of the, what we call the Pakistani Taliban for decades now. How does Pakistan deal with the Taliban? Uh, I saw the Taliban having talks with China. So what's, what's China's, you know, got in its cards kind of thing? Does China think it'll be any different? Well, Chinese construction crews in southern Pakistan and Balochistan have been, been, you know, been targeted by Islamist extremists in that country for a couple of years now as well. So I, I think if you're going to try and sit down with the Taliban or develop a relationship, you got to be careful because the bottom line, Scott, this is a terrorist group. Whether they're governing Afghanistan is, is an interesting question, but at their heart of hearts, they are a listed terrorist group in, in many jurisdictions around the world. Be seen to be sitting on the table with a terrorist group? That's yeah, a real tricky one. So I think everyone's trying to figure out exactly what's going to be next. Bottom line is that for the Afghan people, it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of Taliban rule. Think of women, think of girls, etc. I'm seeing media people are being taken out. Media sources are being closed because they're not Islamic enough it's going to be a terrible time for the Afghan people going forward. Uh, Many are concerned with the U.S. stepping back and not taking a leadership role that China will, and China will move in. But is there any reason to assume the outcome would be any different? I don't see why it would. 
I mean, China has been legitimately criticized for its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Yeah. They've got over a million people in concentration camps, which they call training facilities, euphemistically. A lot of terrorist groups, as I mentioned, just you know, in Balochistan and Pakistan, there are Uyghur terrorist groups like the East Turkestan Islamic Movement in Afghanistan who would love to hit back at China. I can't see the Taliban, you know, you know, basically turning a blind eye to what China China's doing to Uyghur Muslims in the northwest of the country. Does China think it has some kind of magic formula that the rest of us don't have? Maybe, but I'd like to see the details because China's not less in the Islamic world because of what it's doing. Now, it's been able to buy people off, you know, through the Belt Road Initiative, through the infrastructure. It's been building at Bottom line is that China is not a friend of Islam, so how do you square that circle? So uh, does, does China see what's happening in Afghanistan as an issue? Do they care? Do they see this as an opportunity? Well, I think they do. And, you know, the, the one thing that the Chinese have been doing for the better part of well, five or six years through the so-called Belt Road Initiative is, is build infrastructure around the world mm-hmm. in states that couldn't get it from anywhere else at really, really cheap terms. The, po- the, the problem is that the fine print, Scott, says that if you can't pay for this after 20 years, guess who owns it? Yeah. Um, the Sri Lankans learned that with a port. Some African states are starting to push back against China because the terms aren't all, all that good for the countries in, in question. China seems to think, see this probably as an economic opportunity. But there's a lot of baggage in, in Chinese foreign and domestic policy that can be used against it going forward. So I'm not sure what China's game is here. Like I said, they think they, they, they can do this differently. Mm, I'm not so sure. I, I have a confidence. Does terrorism exist in China? It has. So in a book that I wrote a couple of years ago looked at um, uh, terrorist attacks. It's called the Lesser Jihad. And there, there, it was actually Uyghur terrorism in China in the early 2010s. There were attacks mostly knife-wielding assailants at train stations, things like that. So it's not as if that, that, you know, there was no such thing as terrorism in China. Of course, what China has done has gone well beyond dealing with, the, you know, the, the handfuls of Uyghur terrorists and, and, and treated the entire Xinjiang Uyghur population as, as terrorists in training, hence the concentration camps. The last attack that I can remember in China, Scott, is probably 2015 or 2016. So it's been quite some time. You know, obviously with their police, but you know, it's an oppressive state, right? It's a communist state, and, and yeah. it's oppressive in terms of its, its actions. So I think they're probably, you know, doing a pretty good counterterrorism job only through the state of oppression on, on the general population. What does the next 24 hours uh, hold for Afghanistan? What do you see happening in the next 24, 48 hours as this deadline passes? A huge rush by people like friends of mine who are still trying to get, I was just talking to a friend literally five minutes ago, still trying to get families uh, and women and children out of Afghanistan <clears throat> because of the nature of the Taliban regime. You know, it's almost like Saigon in 75. Remember the pictures of the helicopter in the U.S. Embassy? People lining up to try and get on those last helicopters. There'll be a, a rush to get up before the Taliban close the borders, and everyone will do make you know efforts beyond what they can to try to achieve this. But once that wall falls, I, I really my, my heart goes to the Afghan people because it's going to be an interesting to see who, What's what you know moving forward from tomorrow at the end of tomorrow, and I, I don't I'm not I'm not optimistic, Scott. It's going to be a you know a party for the Afghan people going forward. That's my next question. After the 31st, uh, does the Taliban then claim victory, or do they have their hands filled with ISIS K and other groups like that? They've already claimed victory. I mean, you know, yeah. they went through how many provinces and how many days? People were you know, the predictions that I had seen was that the Afghan government would hold out for six months. Did they hold out for six minutes? Well, I mean, yeah. facetious here, obviously, but it was a matter of days before the Taliban took over. So they 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 won. The, the victory is theirs. They now control the entire country. Now there's a bit of pushback 
from some anti-Taliban groups, especially up in the north. There's the Islamic State Khorasan problem for them, but they are the de facto rulers of Afghanistan, and they will do with Afghanistan what they will. And if history is any lesson, go back to the early 90s when the Taliban took over. Girls didn't go to school, women didn't go to work, people were executed publicly for doing things that are un-Islamic. Will we see a repeat? I have no idea. I don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, if the Taliban are true to themselves and true to their ethos and their mentality and their, and their you know, what I call an anti-Diluvian form of Islam, my fear is that you would see similar actions that we saw in the 90s in the 2020s. Uh, is that it for the rescue flights? Have, have they come to a stop? My belief, my belief is yes, by the end of tomorrow. I think a lot of countries we've pulled out. I think the Dutch have pulled out, the Belgians have pulled out, the Germans have pulled out. I think it's onesies and twosies you know, going forward by people that maybe can get private aircraft in. Like I said, I know a lot of Canadians working 24-7 right now, Scott, to try to get people out, and God love them for trying that. But, you know, the, uh, the, the clock is ticking. And, that, that, you know, once, once the, that deadline falls, I think that, you know, the chances of getting people out will be very, very remote at best. And uh, these people will be left to their fate in Afghanistan, unfortunately. Phil Gursky with us, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and former analyst at CSIS as we uh, wind down to the final day of uh, the United States and um, and peacekeepers, what have you, trying to get uh, Canadians and others out of Afghanistan uh, before they lose control of the airport, uh, certainly by this time tomorrow. Phil, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Do you feel safe going to the polls? Uh, not everyone does. New polling from Ipsos shows that some Canadians are getting a little cranky about a pandemic election. Many thought that this would not be an issue once an election was called and people would move on. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos, and with us now. Sean, thank you for the time again. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Many thought that this would subside after the election was called, uh, but this still seems to be an issue about an election that some feel, or that lots feel, most, I guess, felt that was not needed. Is, mm-hmm. it, it, has this lasted longer than you thought it would? Yeah, and in fact, it's uh, uh, getting, getting stronger, the feeling that we shouldn't be having an election. As you sort of suggested, normally the anger lasts about a week and then it subsides as we move on to other things, but uh, here we have 58% of Canadians agreeing that we should not be having an election during a pandemic, up two points. And that's really on the Prime Minister for failing to articulate clearly why, in fact, we're going to the polls, except for, of course, the reason why we all know, which is he wants a majority government. So uh, will this translate into a low turnout? The other day we were talking about how with the race all of a sudden becoming so close, that would generate more interest and we'd have a higher turnout. Yeah, certainly that would have been the conventional wisdom uh, at the start of the campaign when the Liberals looked like they were in the driver's seat, you know, probably more of the same, another minority government. But uh, what we're seeing now with the race tightening, 
Uh, I think uh, nothing motivates people to get out and vote like the belief that their that their vote has an impact, that it's consequential. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, we we may see more people leaning in, getting engaged, and and trying to figure out who they're going to cast the ballot for. But of course, now we've got this new poll that suggests that some people aren't comfortable going to the polling station. Uh, do many realize that Elections Canada is not making it mandatory, although highly suggesting, and like we all are, encouraging everybody to get vaccinated as soon as they can, uh, Elections Canada is not making this mandatory, which is odd considering we're screaming about mandatory vaccine passports and all this sort of thing. Uh, do you think that also equals a little bit of hesitation for voters? Well, it could. I mean, all of these things sort of add up, and, and if you were on the fence about voting, not for whom, but but voting at all, if, if you weren't sure whether you're going to do it, this may just be another uh, reason, or maybe some might say excuse, uh, not to go out and, and, and cast your uh, cast your ballot. So we have, you know, what it would equate to a few million Canadians saying that they're intending to do it by uh, by mail-in ballot instead of actually going to the polling station. But we only had about 50,000 people who did that last time around. And I'm sure there's a bit of a learning curve for people. So, uh, you know, even though they say they might vote by mail, it may not happen. And as a result, we might have a lower voter turnout. Uh, certainly, a COVID campaign is not your typical election campaign. It's certainly not going the same way for the prime minister. He's been met with uh, quite a bit of protest along the campaign trail. Uh, can he spin this uh, as he being the victim and this is the opposition? Can he paint the opposition with these protesters? Well, I, I think it's certainly a distraction. It's probably the first time in the last two weeks where uh, the heat, uh, negative heat, has been on the uh, the Conservative Party. They've really been on a, on a roll because all of the, the criticism was being levied on the Prime Minister. Why did you call an election? Why is the Afghanistan airlift going so poorly? All of these things which uh, have put the prime minister on the defensive. Now he's, he's got an attack. And it's a familiar refrain during a campaign. It's almost always the case where you've got a couple of conservative candidates going rogue because of this, that, or the other thing. Um, but what it does is it serves to reinforce some hesitation that people have about the conservative party and how well, uh, you know, uh, how much control Aaron O'Toole has uh, uh, on those uh, certain components of the party that uh, he would probably like to keep uh, hidden uh, to a certain extent. Will these protesters provide the wedge issue that the prime minister is looking for? Does this provide the fight that he needs? Well, I'm not sure that it's a it's a particular issue that that creates a wedge, but it, it does it does cast a little bit of doubt. Uh, it does add a little bit of credibility to their uh, refrain that, that, that the Conservatives maybe can't be trusted because there's an element uh, in there that isn't as progressive as the rest of us, uh, and uh, that Aaron O'Toole, despite what he says, at the end of the day is beholden to his party to do X, Y, and Z. I'm not sure whether that is, is the case. Aaron O'Toole has actually come out against some of what the party decided at, at, at the convention uh, not too too long ago. Uh, so, of course, that, that common balance between how far left can you go before you alienate the right, that's the dance that O'Toole is playing right now. And uh, I think that the prime minister is saying, look, uh, he actually has to listen to, the, to, the, to, to that element of his party. Otherwise, you know, he's going to be in trouble. Many have said this election will take a completely different tone after the Labor Day weekend. Your thoughts on that? 
Well, certainly uh, Canadians generally pay a little bit more attention to the news uh, once the summer holidays are over, and that's probably going to be the case here. I think the debates will matter because uh, Canadians are still becoming familiar with the, with the leaders, particularly O'Toole. It's his first election cycle. They're still trying to learn about all of the various policy platforms that the parties have. The Liberals haven't yet released theirs in full, so there are probably some things that we're going to learn about the Liberal platform during the, the debates. Uh, but ultimately, I think that'll be the, the, the one moment, the best moment in a, in a fairly short campaign period uh, for the leaders to introduce themselves to Canadians and, and uh, share some of the ideas that they have to offer. Sean Simpson with us, Vice President of Ipsos, giving us uh, the pulse of the election campaign. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Uh, let's bring in Bill Brio, television critic and author. He is with us now. Uh, Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. I think what surprises me about all the stuff that I have read uh, today on the passing of Ed Asner is now the only lone survivor of the Mary Tyler Moore show is Betty White at 99. Yeah, I know. It's uh, And we've lost uh, three or four of them just in the last 12 months. You know, uh, Gavin McLeod back in May. And then um, there's James L. Brooks, the two guys that created the show, um, one of them passed away, not Brooks, but the other one, um, just uh, within the last year. Or so it uh, it's dwindled down to just Betty White. Uh, this was groundbreaking TV way back when. Explain why. Well, you know, believe it or not, you know, as late as 1971, 70, uh, it was just unusual to see working women portrayed in the workplace. On television, you know, you had Julia was a nurse, I guess, in the late 60s. Hmm. Uh, you had Rosemarie on the Dick Van Dyke Show as a comedy writer. But you, you very rarely followed women to work on television back in those days. There was a lot of June Cleavers doing the vacuuming with the pearls on at home. Uh, this touched on some political issues of the day. I'm thinking of shows like All in the Family. Uh, it was in that category, whether it was women's rights or, or Mary fighting for them and, and, and just the boys club, which can be a TV newsroom. Yeah, for sure. You know, it was the rise of the women's movement was very uh, prominent during the years of the Mary Tyler Moore show. So she was a symbol for that movement for a lot of people. Gloria Steinem, I think, you know, made that comment many times. And uh, more, I think, you know, her priority was to make a funny show. She and her husband, Grant Tinker, who was a network executive, they ended up, you know, sort of like I Love Lucy and uh, Desi Arnaz, uh, developing a whole studio with several hit shows during the 70s. So it's quite an accomplishment. Ed Asner, uh, I had forgotten that he was in the movie, the animated movie, Up, as the voice of uh, the main character. This yeah. this guy had a long career, didn't he? Oh, my goodness. If you look up, there's this international movie database. It's where you go to see all the credits for all the TV stars, IMDb. 417 credits and about five or six for things that still haven't premiered. You know, like he kept working. And he did a lot of stuff in Canada, in Toronto and Vancouver, Hallmark TV movies. Uh, you know, he came across the border and did a Christmas episode of Murdoch Mysteries as Santa Claus. He, uh, you know, he was up here quite a bit. Did you meet him? What was he like? Yeah, a couple of times. Uh, you know, he was really what you'd expect, only friendlier. <laughs> he wasn't 
really Lou Grant at all. Um, he actually did like spunk, you know, <laughs> he was funky. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. And what was cool, the first time I met him, I was in Dodger Stadium and there was a bunch of press there. CBS had hosted this event for reporters in L.A. who covered television. I had my name tag on. I was at the Toronto Sun at the time. And he looked at me and he goes, hey, I used to be your boss. And I said, pardon me. And then he wow. explained. In 1979, he was called up for this great stunt that the Toronto Sun did. Yes. Where yeah. uh, he was editor of the newspaper and they took his picture and put it on the front page and uh you know they got a lot of play out of it so he was a good sport when that came came by for sure uh was he aware that what he was doing with mary tyler moore and even lou grant after that was innovative television i don't you know that's a great question at the time i think they were very proud of their show that it was funny that it was seen by a lot of people. It didn't start that way. And he told me that. He said, you know, when they did the first read-through, he thought, this thing's not going to work. It's not going to get on its feet in time for Friday for the studio taping. And if you look back, it wasn't an instant hit. You know, uh, a lot of critics panned it the first few episodes. Um, I actually have a 16-millimeter print of the fall preview for that year. There's a, that scene, that famous scene between Ed and, and Mary uh, and uh, that spunk scene. And it's flat. It was shot early and it was played uh, sort of out of character and it just didn't work. So they didn't know that it was going to be a big hit. It was just another job. But I'm sure they thought that Mary got more attached and Brad Tinker that it would amount to something. And it sure did. You can see what he brought to that role as Lou Grant. Because if you put somebody else in there, it maybe doesn't have the same edge as as what Ed Asner did. I mean, there was the edge there, but then there was sort of the, you know, nice, grumpy old man. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people auditioned for that role, and Asner auditioned twice. He came in and read, and he did a lousy job, and he left, and the producers thought, well, back to the drawing board, and then he came back like 10 minutes later and said, look, guys, that was terrible. Let me Let me do it again. And he got it the second time, but he almost didn't play. Uh, Lou Grant. How long did both of these shows run, Mary, T Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant? Mary Tyler Moore, seven years. Lou Grant was five or six and would have run longer. But Asner became very proactive in terms of causes. He was very outspoken. He became president of the Screen Actors Guild. And he was a crusader for liberal cause causes in Hollywood, sometimes running afoul of the networks and sponsors. And with Lou Grant, the drama, uh, two of the sponsors came to CBS and said, if you don't make this guy shut up, we're pulling our sponsorship. Grant uh, Asner refused to clamp up, and so they did. And so the show was brought to an early end. I don't remember him being an activist in that respect. This was more of an industry thing. It wasn't like you saw him on the news with a megaphone. It was just yeah. with the, the, the brothers of the acting community. He objected to many things, so he was very vocal uh, in terms of merging the Screen Actors Guild with another uh, guild uh, and always sort of advocating for the rights of actors. And when you go back, you know, to the 60s and into the early 70s, a lot of those actors didn't earn the residuals uh, anywhere near the money that uh, they did, you know, in the 80s and 90s with Friends and different shows. So 
he was quite, uh, you know, fellow actors love Luke uh, Ed Asner because he really stood up for them in many ways. Uh, many times when a uh, actor plays a certain character in a TV series, or in this case, two for a long period of time, they become stereotyped and they get stuck in that. Did he just outlive all of that? You have to remember, he worked like crazy, and it took him a while. Like he wasn't an instant, you know, he wasn't like a young star ever. He he worked, yeah. he did westerns, he did anything. But by the time he got married to Tyler Moore, he was almost in middle age. And during that run, he was in Roots, and he was playing like a slave trader, you know, like it was a very uh, dark role. So he was showing range even as he was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he just kept working and playing different things, even though a lot of us always saw him as Lou Grant. Uh, is that how you think he will be remembered? Is that, will it be Lou Grant? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the most iconic characters ever in history of television. It's, you know, you've got, uh, Archie Bunker and Ralph Cramp. I think Lou Grant's up there. You know, it's, it's, he's the boss that, we all, if we didn't wish to have had him, we, we still would love to have pleased him, you know, like he was tough, but um, gruff, but lovable, right? That's how you always characterize Lou Grant. And I remember uh, Mary Tyler Moore calling him and how that became a moniker of the time, you know, Lou, <laughs> it seemed <laughs> to catch always, on. Always Mr. Grant, never Lou, you know, it was very formal, but he, uh, he was up in Canada shooting a sitcom, uh, Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays, that nobody saw. It came and went. And then um, I saw him in L.A. He was 85, and at this point he was using a cane at this Hallmark dinner. And I said, hey, you were great in that show, Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays. He played a psychiatrist. And he goes, yeah, and they're, apparently they're going to start up again and do some more. And I, and I knew that the show was such a bomb, and it had been off the air for three years, but this made no sense. And I thought, oh, no, Ed Asner's got dementia or something. Isn't that sad? Hmm. Then I got home, and then two weeks later, CBC announced they were doing more Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays. He was giving me a scoop. <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> uh, you know, So he, 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 did, he did an awful lot of TV and a lot of animated voiceover work. And, uh, yeah, good, just a great seven Emmy Awards. Great actor. As we look at that era of television, and again, lots of groundbreaking stuff, um, you know, we can't look at what's coming out now and saying it's not equally as impactful, uh, whether it's on a traditional network or on, or on some sort of streaming service or such. How do you think, uh, this global pandemic will change what we want to see moving forward? Well, it was changing before. COVID, you know, with the rise of streaming services, I think that um, the broadcasters are offering very limited choices now. It's either CSI, Law and Order, or um, The Bachelor. And um, if you want real original scripted, daring original um, dramas or comedies, you really have to look at Disney Plus or Amazon or Netflix. And for example, there's a show starting tomorrow. Uh, it's seen in Canada on Disney Plus, and it's only murders in the building with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and um, um, Selena Gomez of all people. There's a trio. It's wow! Fab- it's and it's fantastic. It is so good. It's a real Agatha Christie murder mystery set in a New York uh, condo, sort of like a Dakota. 
and uh, Martin is and another guy basically created the series, but it's it's fantastic. And you look at it and go, my God, Steve Martin is seventy six. Martin Short is close to seventy, and they're still fabulous. They're right at the top of their game, and Gomez is right with them. It's wonderful. So you know, uh, Ed Asner would wish he was in this show. Is that a comedy or drama? Oh, it's a comedy, but it's a it's a murder. It's a whodunit. It's absolutely ah. a so you know oh. it can be enjoyed in a lot of levels. But uh, and, and I know folks listening who might have seen. Uh, Martin Short and Steve Martin doing their comedy show. I think it was on yeah. Casino Rama. Uh, you know, they have, they're those guys. They're like a comedy team now. They're yeah. so fantastic. But they're playing real characters, and uh, it's I, I can't recommend it enough. It's really tremendous. And what's it called again? Only Murders in the Building. They actually, these guys are trying to solve a murder in their Dakota-like building, and they create a podcast, and that's the name of it, with Selena Gomez trying to solve this murder. <laughs> wow. All right, Bill Brio with his TV critic, brio.tv.com to find out more. Television critic, you can read him uh, pretty much all across the nation. Bill, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.